This week, someone really interesting for you to meet. One of Australia's best obstetricians gives you the inside running on what to expect during labour and delivery. This is an ABC podcast. This is Baby Talk Podcast with Penny Johnston. If you like watching Bridget Jones, it's always great to meet someone that you can refer to as a top man in their field. One of our top people, our top person, really. But my next guest really is one of those. He's a rare beast indeed, a specialist obstetrician who's been doing this for two decades. He's helped deliver thousands of babies. He's based at the Mercy Hospital for Women where he trains obstetric specialists. He lectures at Melbourne University and as a researcher he's passionate about reducing risks in pregnancy. Hey, he even researches safer pregnancy ideas in his spare time. In short, Professor Stephen Tong is amazing at what he does and now he's written a book. It's called The Birth Book, and if you're having a baby, you need this book. It explains what is likely to happen during birth. It covers what should happen, what might go wrong. It even explains what interventions might be needed, and it's all written in a very considered and simple way. So one of the magic moments, which is obvious, I think, is... The time when women and their partners and any support people, when they're in the room, the mood completely changes. It's quite breathtaking. Once the baby's in the arms, the room's dimmed and all the excitement's over and the placenta's out. And if there's a tear there, that's been repaired. And so you can imagine that in the second stage, it's relatively tense and exciting. There's quite a lot of energy, but it's quite tense. But then the mood completely changes to utter relief and it's just really quite beautiful. So the euphoria kicks in really quite early and that's just lovely to see. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to Professor Stephen Tong today. And Stephen, I'm just intrigued. Why did you want to write this book about birth? I've been looking after women for 20 years who are pregnant and who are birthing and really looked after and cared for thousands of uh, pregnancies. And so for the last 20 years, I've just noticed that there could be many women out there who just might want to know much more what they're in for when they step into the birth suite. And I would put it to you, Penny, that uh, for a lot of women, the birth suite's a bit of a black box. And I think what echoes that is a very lovely podcast you did about six months ago with Dr. Orford. And you hear Prue Bentley's beautiful story where she had thought that she would have a vaginal birth and it U-turned uh, into an emergency caesarean section. And she felt perhaps a little bit, the knowledge was uh, lacking, which might have added to it being a bit scary. So I just think that for women who are having their baby when they walk in and they walk into possibly the black box of the birth suite, they just might have a much nicer experience if they know what they're in for. When they step in, it might be good to know how long labour is meant to be. They, If they have a mastery of understanding the ins and outs of all the pain relief options, especially the epidural and hopefully an objective voice just taking away all the myths and they can make their choice whether they want an epidural or not that they know when they step in, they're going to have one-to-one -one midwifery, what the heart rate monitoring of the baby's all about, that there's a recess cot in the corner. 
If they have a vaginal birth, just to know that tears might happen a bit more commonly, that, but most can be fixed without uh, any long-term consequences. Sometimes the baby comes out needing a bit of resuscitation. So in short, if you just knew what vaginal birth was all about, just knowing ahead of time just might make that experience more enriched and women may be more empowered in their birth choices. Now, as you also mentioned in that previous podcast, that some 30% of births do not end up as a vaginal birth. Uh, they end up as a cesarean section. And for most women, but not all, that's the plan B of birth. And this is the main reason why I thought this book was needed. Often, and especially in Prue's case in that podcast you did before, it's apparent that someone needs a Caesar and sometimes it's urgent and we need to do it within half an hour or so. And then we go up to uh, the poor woman who's been buffeted by contractions and we give them a spiel to give them informed consent as best we can. And as doctors and midwives, I think we do the best that we can in the circumstances. But it's rushed. They're probably not in the greatest position to absorb such a mountain of information. And there's no easy solution to this, uh, Penny. And I just reason that for those who want to know, if they just understand the deal with cesarean sections and forceps births, which is the other plan B ahead of time, it may not be too scary that they know, I've got this. I understand that this wasn't the vaginal birth I'd hoped for, but I understand that I'll be kept safe and I'll understand the principles of it and what's going to happen. And that just might make the birth experience far less scary. So that's the main reason I wrote the book. Hopefully it will help a lot of women make it less intimidating and hopefully a more enriched experience. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because we've got podcasts that will talk about just about anything. I'm sure you can find a video of rhinoceroses mating on <laughs> YouTube. You can find anything on the internet. So with anything available to anybody to find out, do you think that we know more about birth or less? Well, I think we've all struggled, not just in this topic, but any topic that you can think of, that there's really an information explosion that you can access on a tap of the button. I would argue that the concern with that, and we've heard it in the most extreme cases, the whole pros and cons about vaccination and the very strong minority who just refuse to have the vaccination. The communities out there, they have an avalanche of information. It's very hard to sort through the information. And so that's a bit of a problem there. So it may be interesting to see the rhinoceros birth, but probably doesn't help to know whether that will, whether raspberry leaf tea will get you into labour, for instance. The hope is that while there are podcasts and they're very important, I suppose that a traditional book still does have its merits because it's got a beginning, middle of an end with a author, hopefully an expert being me, uh, giving a balanced parcels of information with a whole arc in mind with the goal that women can read it and they can get a complete and very sensible balance parcel information before they step into the birth suite. Some of the Instagram people that post the beautiful shots of their birth look down their noses at women that had epidurals. Mm. Whether that's helped the cause or set us back a little. There are definite pressure points all around birth where it's gone just a little bit beyond the pros and cons and it's uh, just landed and strayed into the area of philosophy of birth. And whether it's helped the cause or not, I might not buy into, other than to say that I've looked after births of all types. I've looked after women with different approaches to birth 
And because I cater to all as best I can, I'm very neutral how women approach birth. So what's perhaps different about this book is the intention is I just give all the facts as balanced as I can down in the middle. And then uh, women with the objective information can make a choice which way they would like to go. Now, if I, I've, because I, I've completely realized I'm hitting a polarized topic and I suspect that there just might be a bit of disapproval from each side. The fact that I don't dish the epidural and I say it's a very safe and legitimate option will rile some. But on the reverse side, the fact that I mentioned that with pain, it's also an emotional experience and that support such as people such as doulas and hypnobirthing is definitely plays an important role, just might uh, role people on the other side of the equation. So if I've done my job correctly, I've uh, sat in the middle and just given the information neutrally so women can make their own choice. One of the things that I've noticed is that there is a rise in women talking about birth trauma and unpleasant experiences during birth. Now, it it's so interesting to hear birth stories because there's a lot of perspective in the birthing suite and sometimes some of the things that can happen if you don't expect them can appear to be brusque or traumatic or or unexpected and are you hoping that by writing the book that might cause people not to think of it as so much as trauma but as emergency intervention? If I can follow the gist, it's a very legitimate question and well worth and trying to tackle. So birth trauma itself is a range of definitions, but probably overarching over it is women who just have not had a good experience with birth. And if you dissect it to uh, different possible forms, now I think that the actual definition of actual birth trauma evolves a lot. But if I just kept it brief and high level, there may be the emotional aspects of birth trauma where women might not have had any long-lasting effects, but they just had a terrible time in birth suite and it's been mentally traumatic for them. I'm sort of hoping that this book might help decrease the numbers that may experience that because I think one element of that is just the unknowns as you walk into the birth suite. And I'm sort of hoping that dispelling a lot of the unknowns might make the experience more positive, that women uh, know what they're in for before they step into the birth suite. Now, there's other birth trauma, which is more physical in nature, such as significant tearing from vaginal births or forceps birth. And that is addressed sensitively in the book, I hope. Uh, I put a few main points. The first is that tearing is pretty common, but I'm very quick to reassure women that in most cases, the perineal tearing or the tearing in that sensitive region around the vagina, in most cases, it can be repaired adequately. It heals really well. And because that area is very vascular, in six weeks time, hopefully a lot of women will struggle to see where the stitching was even done. There's very little scarring. And the analogy I put in the book is it's a bit like cutting the the fleshy pops of your fingers in a kitchen mishap. It hurts at the time, but it's so vascular it heals well. So I reassure a lot of women that tears happen. I would encourage them not to think of that as birth trauma. Most of those tears will heal very nicely with repairs. I do also then sensitively notice that some, some tears are rather more extensive and that might be considered as birth trauma and there's residual effects from that. There's less control 
of the bladder and sometimes the bowels, and that can be ongoing. And unfortunately for a tiny minority of women, uh, it's significant and really impacts on their life lo- lifelong. And that is physical birth trauma, which is a problem. And I discuss in the book uh, that it's rare to, or it's very uncommon. The only way to completely avoid it is to go straight for a Caesar, but uh, then I don't strong, I strongly do not advocate everyone having a Caesar because of it. But again, I discuss that sort of birth trauma and discuss your options if that really does bother you. Thanks for answering that question. It's a really hard one. And sometimes either as a mother or an obstetrician, it's difficult to talk about. ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Digital Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. One of the great chapters in the book, I really enjoyed reading, it may sound a bit crazy, about epidurals because even though I had one, (laughs) I don't think I ever knew as much about it until I'd finished reading your book. I just found it really fascinating hearing how it actually works and, and even... The side effects I found very interesting too. Yep. So I'm not an anaesthetist and I made sure a very clever anaesthetist vetted uh, the accuracy on that one. So the epidural is an interesting one. For the 20 years that I've practiced and I suspect for the next 20 years ongoing, it is one of the key political hot potatoes. I also think it's one of the things which is discussed about. A lot of women uh, fester whether they're going to have it or not beforehand. And I'm always curious how many will walk in and say, I think I'll try without an epidural, but I don't know whether that they have all the facts in front of them to make that decision. Um, I don't want to make the decision for them, but I think it's one of the most important topics for which women will be actively deciding whether they want to have one or to try without one. And the ones with fast labour who try without one, they often just stick with that decision. Those who uh, have a sadly a much longer labour than they anticipated may reevaluate the decision. I mean, I certainly won't go through the pros and cons now. I would just counter some of the myths to say it's a very safe option for many. It does have its risks, uh, which I mentioned in the book, but it's overall safe. But my only word of advice, which I'd encourage women to consider, is if you've decided that you want to try without one, that's absolutely okay. And I endorse that decision. But don't set it up that if you then have an epidural, then you've somehow failed. And some women walk in and they get their partners to promise They ask their partners to promise them that if they ask for an epidural, which is a weakness somehow, that the partner should stop the medical staff from giving the epidural and those situations best avoided. So don't set it up that if you end up with an epidural, you've somehow failed. That's not what I encourage. Keep all options open, I reckon. Although I have to say the weirdest thing about my epidural was, because I did have a C-section, was still being able to feel the sensation of the team inside dragging out the baby. That I found completely freaky. They kept saying, but you can't feel any pain. Can you feel any pain? No, but I sure as heck can feel like someone's got a gumboot on my chest (laughs) as is rummaging around in the contents of my guts. It was bizarre. Yeah, so the epidural is designed to block the pain system, which are thin nerve fibres, not so much the sensation with an entirely different system, which are bigger nerve fibres. It does block the motor as well, but less so. Hopefully there are 
a few steps in the Caesar where there's a bit of rummaging called for, such as pulling out the munchkin, but uh, not too often. We're not constantly rummaging around in there. Unless there's <laughs> twins or triplets, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. Another chapter that is probably worth the price of the book alone and anyone who's desperately waiting to go into labour, you've got some information about getting it started. Yes. So you're right, there's been a shopping list of techniques or tips that women can help start their labour naturally. They've been the same list for the last 20 years, but they almost have come out more to the fore since we've got uh, the internet. And uh, they include such as drinking raspberry leaf tea, eating seriously hot spicy food, drinking sculling castor oil, which sounds absolutely disgusting, uh, vigorous walking and intercourse. Now, I can understand women looking at this up. They've reached 38, 39 weeks. Each day feels like a week. Perhaps their hips are hurting more than they would like to and they're just waiting for labour. So I can understand them looking them up. And So unfortunately, the medical evidence, objective medical evidence supporting any of these helping you get into labour is not really there. But they're very safe should you want to try them. Now, lots of people anecdotally will try them and say, oh, I had a spicy curry and then I went to labour the next day. And I don't want to take that birth experience and that thought away from you. And if you think that that's how it got you into labour, it could absolutely be true. But I also put it that once you've reached 39 weeks, the probability of you going labour on any different given day is pretty high. So more will go into labour naturally than not. And it just could be that you've timed that dinner well. But one way which is considered natural, uh, loved by obstetrician and midwives, is something called a stretch and sweep. And this has been proven in studies to work, and I encourage women to consider it. And what it is, is as you approach 38, 39 weeks, the midwife obstetrician with the gloved hand uh, does a gentle internal examination, puts the finger into the cervix, the opening of the womb, and does a few sweeps. How it works, it's thought to stir a bit of a hormone reaction that just sort of cranks on cranks up the mechanism of labour, but it has been shown that if you have stretch and sweeps, the chances that you are left undelivered drop, and the other bonus is that if you go into labour, the chances that you avoid medical intervention also appears to drop. So stretch and sweep is something which I believe does work. Sounds slightly more palatable than the uh, castor oil. Yeah, the castor oil uh, has a historic beginnings back in the 1930s when uh, we didn't really have anything. It was highly recommended. In 1948, it was discontinued as an official treatment in the US because it really caused unpleasant symptoms, uh, gastric symptoms, and I think it will still do that if you're brave enough to give that a shot. The first stage of labour, I'm actually thinking that the midwives break it down a little bit more than you do, but that's the bit where labour gets started and about to deliver the baby. Yeah, so the first stage has the passive stage and active stage. That's how I've broken down the book. The passive stage is when you're starting to feel the very beginnings of labour, very exciting, and often uh, women are at home at that stage unless you've been induced. And we encourage women to spend time at home during the passive stage, and that's when the very first contractions start and the uterus starts tightening at first. At first it's not painful, and then they happen many times within an hour, and then they come together to be every 15 seconds and 30 seconds and 45 seconds, and yep, they start 
transitioning from being tight to painful. And then active labour is when we invite women in and that's when the cervix starts dilating. The cervix needs to dilate up to 10 centimetres and so the active stage usually lasts super roughly, about six to eight hours, but there's huge variations in that. And that's how I would uh, define first stage in a nutshell. And first, the end of first stage is when you're fully dilated, you've reached a second stage and you're ready to push the baby out. And what intrigues me is the midwives say that's the stage where you decide you can't do it anymore and you're going home. <laughs> the thing which might just uh, prevent women from just packing their bags and heading off penny is probably the discomfort and the pain. They might not feel uh, ready to head off home. But yeah, that, that's where, I mean, what, what you're saying, which your midwife friends are completely right, is most of the time is spent in the first stage. First stage is essentially waiting for the cervix to be fully dilated so you can push baby out. So that's the really hard bit of labour. Actually, it's all hard, but that's the waiting is difficult. Yeah. Obviously, second-time mothers know what's happening, but do you sense that it is a slightly easier time because you know what's coming? I think two reasons. Uh, for second-time mums, certainly having gone through that great unknown helps a heck of a lot psychologically. So there's definitely an element there. But there's also uh, the other element that second-time mums, if you strip away the emotional side, they, their bodies physiologically just do birth far better. And that's they, their labours are shorter. The uh, pushing stage is often far shorter. The body just knows what to do. Tears are far less likely to be extensive. And if they're they are far more likely to escape without a tear. So physiologically as well, second-time mums uh, do birth much easier. And the final point I'll make there is very much born in the statistics. So in most parts of Australia, if you're a first-time mum, you have about a 20 30% chance of ending up with a Caesar, about a 10% chance needing a bit of assistance such as the forceps or the suction cup. And so a, a vaginal birth chance sits at just 50 60%. But a second-time mum in spontaneous labour can look forward to an 85% and sometimes 90% chance of having a vaginal birth unassisted, which is great. That is awesome. After it's all over, obviously exhausting, but the women that have managed to do it, it must be a euphoric feeling. I completely endorse that. So one of the magic moments, which is obvious, I think, to all that have been privileged in the birth suite is the time when women and their partners and any support people who are allowed in in this COVID era, when they're in the room, the mood completely changes. It's quite breathtaking. Once the baby's in the arms, the room's dimmed and all the excitement's over and the placenta's out. And if there's a tear there, that's been repaired. And so you can imagine that in the second stage, it's relatively tense and exciting. There's quite a lot of energy, but it's quite tense. But then the mood completely changes to utter relief and it's just really quite beautiful. So the euphoria kicks in really quite early and that's just lovely to see. Is that the sort of little endorphin high that keeps you all in your job? Oh, for us, that's definitely one. It's endorphins. I would say it's 50% endorphin, 50% relief as well. <laughs> As I say in the book, we can facilitate, uh, everyone in Australia can facilitate very safe birth, 
But birth intrinsically is not as risk-free as a lot of people would like to think. And we also feel a sense of relief when it's all done and the family's grown by one and all is good. So yes, 50% endorphin, but 50% relief. Yeah. Relief endorphins, if they exist. If we were in a birth suite together, probably you'd be wearing a mask because it's COVID, but you'd be probably looking pretty calm and chatting away. I'd be panicking. But what would be going on behind your calm facade? Because obviously nobody wants to see their obstetrician look panicked. But how do you approach a day at the office which can bring any number of variables? I mean, I've done this for... 20 years. Uh, I think panic has is a rarity happily. I'll panic far more if I have to do some home handyman stuff, which I'm completely <laughs> unskilled for. So panic isn't quite the word for it. I'd be a bit worried if I haven't quite got over that as well. And, but it depends on the birth and how it's going. I mean, I'm experienced enough just to see that if it's, uh, for instance, if I just go that I'm delivering one of my private patients, for instance. So if we just focus as a one-to-one thing, you can see whether spot fire is building up or not. If it's a second or third time mum and she's rocking along and the baby's facing the right way, it's not even, there's just no panic and there's a strong expectation it will be just a beautiful birth. If I can see headwinds, the baby's facing the wrong way or the heart rate trace suggests that the baby's oxygen supply is iffy, then that can make me guarded. But I've done this long enough that I know what to do and what to expect. And I think you want an obstetrician and a midwifery team. There's can't do it without uh, the midwife in the room. Can see the spot fires and that helps a lot. I don't know whether this uh, answers your question, but there's a different level of being an obstetrician and that's working in the public system where you're the boss of a team of the great midwifery team and the junior doctors. And the the mindset's a bit different because you're really just juggling uh, 10 or 12 women in labour at the same time. Unlike private, you're unlikely to attend and turn up if it's a straightforward vaginal birth, although you're seriously gunning for that to happen. But the stress really comes in uh, juggling and managing the whole birth suite when it becomes really busy and hectic, just triaging who may need a Caesar, which Caesar's the more urgent. And that might cause a little bit more anxiety when you're juggling lots of women who are labouring at the same time. But that's um, a job we do, made much more difficult with COVID. uh, But we've been doing well enough with COVID, very proud of the team when they do well with COVID. But and wearing the N95s all the time, it does suck. Yeah. How has the birthing experience changed for women? Because you used to have, you used to be able to have a few people in, but now you're just relegated to the one? Yeah, it's a good question, Penny. It's certainly changed a lot. Our birth suite at Mercy Hospital for Women and probably many others have really done their best. And I'm just very proud of the efforts of my hospital and I think maternity services across Australia, really in doing our best. So even, for instance, in Victoria, where we had our share of lockdowns, even in the worst lockdowns, we've always allowed the support partner in, except for a few cases possibly when there's COVID positive, but they're certainly allowed in now. And so that's one thing. So women, you heard a few stories, perhaps overseas, of women having to birth alone COVID positive. Uh, So we 
didn't get to that during the COVID era when with lots of lockdowns, which is good. We also have allowed women when they're pushing, etc., to not wear their mask. We all do. It's just a bit cruel to have them having to wear the mask during the pushing stage. And uh, most of labour, they don't, the, the birthing woman does not need to have a mask, which is good. Now, the last little bit of COVID is just an interesting anecdote I'd like to share with you. It's the postnatal period. Now, this has been a little bit difficult in that uh, lots of family members haven't been allowed into the hospital. The, the, the support person is allowed to visit. And so this caused consternation at the beginning and still does. And I, uh, I get it that that's upsetting and distressing where you want to share the experience with lots of visitors. But I will just say that uh, a lot of women, especially second-time mums, uh, ended up not minding the experience. And I'll tell you why. Uh, they've actually quite enjoyed that the first few days, it's the hospital, not them who have told others to stay away. And that's just given them a lot of unfettered bonding time with their baby. They don't have, for instance, their sister-in-law coming at 4.30 and their mum at 5 and their dad at 6.30 after work and their friend at 8, for which they really can't rest between those visits. And so some women, not all, have really said, oh, that uh, is actually been paradoxically a really good experience because visitors weren't allowed Oh, it's nice. There's a silver lining. It is a silver lining. I uh, caution that uh, some have been bothered by it, but I will say a significant number haven't and have enjoyed that. So if you or you know someone who's going to give birth this year, this book would be a really handy reference. I encourage your audience to flick through it. Now, if they think that I wrote it to make a dollar, I want them to put it back onto the bookshelf. That wasn't the intention. In fact, it was an extracurricular activity and it was uh, hard work fitting it in. But if uh, you flick through and genuinely think that I've written it to enhance the birth experience for them or their friend or their sister, uh, then I hope that you might consider buying it. And if it improves the birth experience of whoever reads it, then I'm happy it's fulfilled its purpose. The Birth Book by Professor Stephen Tong is available now and I really hope you enjoyed meeting him today and hearing about some of the information that's included in much more detail in the book. My copy is already in the mail now to a dear friend who's just about to have her baby. Really, it's one of the most solid, sensible books about birth that I've had the chance to read and I hope it will become a reference for heaps of women as they approach their own births. You're listening to Baby Talk. Baby Talk. Baby Talk. Tell your friends if they have a baby, they need to listen to Baby Talk. And if you liked this interview, you might be interested in last week's topic, which is a really tricky one. It's all about why drinking alcohol if you're pregnant can be so dangerous to your developing baby. We would suggest that women stop drinking three months before they try to get pregnant. We would suggest that they also stop smoking, that they consult with their general practitioner about what prescribed medications they're on, whether they could harm the unborn child and that they think about other issues such as diet, which might impact the baby. So, for example, we advise women not to 
drink, eat pate or unpasteurised milk and cheese because they may contain bacteria that could harm the baby. But those harms are, are much less frequent than the harms that might occur from alcohol. You can find that episode on the Baby Talk podcast, which is on the ABC Listen app and on iTunes too. I'm Penny Johnston. I'll see you next time on Baby Talk. ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Digital Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Like us on Facebook to find out as soon as a new episode is ready. Just search for ABC Baby Talk. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.